2: Mr had me <laughs> either way it, it's it what art. I I know. A great start welcome to who arted where we explore visual arts in an audio medium I'm your host Kyle wood and joining me once again I have my new friends Caitlin Corby hosts of the art education podcast or the art teachers podcast those art teachers thanks for joining me
3: my oh. cat
1: is joining us too. And I was <laughs> pausing. Thank you again for having us. We're excited to
3: be here. Yes. Thank you so much. Happy to be here.
2: And I am just... um I'm so happy to have you and feeling such a connection to you right now as we're all having flashbacks to remote learning as we've already had a little bit of fun troubleshooting ahead of our our hitting the record button and uh, your cat is joining you, which is bringing back some trauma for me because my cat, when we were on (laughs) Zoom school, my cat used to pounce on me. Anytime I was on Zoom at home, like it, like the the other art teachers in our meetings and stuff, it was just known that like at some point they would be like watching out for it, like when is, when is Cat gonna jump on Kyle? Because that was my old cat's name, Kat.
3: Cat. Cat. Oh
2: yes, my <laughs> she had a name at the shelter. She was like Kathy, but my son, who was uh much younger at the time, was just like, nope, it's Cat. It's Cat. I love he, that. He was a very literal child. So
3: we had a cat growing up. and We named her girl cat. So I I can relate. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I like that. Um, well, today uh, you are the perfect, perfect guests for what will be my last full episode before I start next season and just want to do my due diligence and make sure that I am Appropriately mentioning your show, Those Art Teachers, available on all major podcast platforms, but I also need to slip in a little shameless self-promotion too. So my next season, starting after Christmas, I'm going to be releasing 64 episodes in 64 days, um, all leading up to my annual Arts Madness Tournament. So make sure you're looking out for that. Go on... um, you know whoartedpodcast.com to fill out your prediction forms, vote for your favorites, and if you shout out your favorite art teacher, I am going to pick one art teacher who gets the most mentions and send them a $50 Amazon gift card. So please make sure you're participating in that. I hope um I hope you two will will join me in the fun in that in judging all sorts of artists.
3: That sounds amazing. I love That's that. awesome. Yeah.
2: So I'm looking forward to that. This year should be bigger than last. It gets bigger every year. So, uh, But this episode is about Zaria Foreman. Hopefully I pronounced her name right. Otherwise, I'm just on brand for mispronouncing everybody's. That's um, how
3: I pronounce it. But Corby and I were also discussing that like Zaria, Zaria,
1: uh, I even Zaria. I tried like looking up videos to see and like all the artist interview videos I found, like she doesn't ever say her name. So I was like, yeah, I don't know if we are saying it right or not. So, yeah,
2: I don't know. And when I when I listen to like those, you know how you can do a, a, a search on like, how do you pronounce and put in a name? Yeah. you know, Like sometimes I find like multiple things that will like almost they sound different to me. And everything sounds kind of the same to me at at the same time. So Zaria, if you're listening, hopefully I got your name right. If not, feel free to correct me. Uh, She's known for her pastel drawings. Uh, She documents like the environment, climate change, all of that stuff that we're living with and living through today. Because she's a contemporary artist born... um, in Massachusetts, 1982. Her mother actually was also an artist. Her mother, Rena Bass Foreman, was a photographer. So throughout her childhood, Zaria would join her mom on these exhibitions to just document numerous remote locations. And it sounds like an amazing formative experience going to all different corners of the globe. Like I can only yeah, I'm jealous. That. I I think it sounds I think, like we're an all amazing
3: jealous. childhood.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know, as as we we can see, like that obviously was a huge influence on her work because what she is known for is stuff that is photorealistic drawings of nature of the landscapes from all around the world. Um, so she obviously grows up traveling quite a bit uh she went to art school 2005 she gets a bs studio art skidmore college um up in new york and after that 20 like pretty much right out of school you know she's if you look at her cv her exhibition history is intimidating i mean it it's a book <laughs> this the all the places she's exhibited but and she's done artists in residencies and all of that stuff. Like 2015, she was the artist in residence on National Geographics Explorer. She visited Antarctica. And during that, she was inspired um to just take on this massive, massive project documenting the water and the ice as the glaciers recede. Mm-hmm. And like just to think about like why that would be an issue for those who are if you haven't heard you know pretty much all the scientists in the world have been yelling at us for a long time because you know the glaciers are melting and it is causing all sorts of issues um greenland and our antarctica have lost 6.4 trillion tons of ice Since the 1990s,
3: I learned through her, too, that uh, Antarctica has risen. The temperature has risen 11 degrees and the worldwide average is like one point five. But Antarctica, um, but really the Arctic's are like uh, showing us they're kind of like the canary in the mind. They're showing us like what's going to happen because they are also like the extremes right now. And it's risen, the temperatures risen 11 degrees, which is causing the melting.
2: Yeah. And, you know, that has these, you know, spillover effects, I mean, quite literally spillover effects, because the meltwater from all of that, all, all the glaciers and stuff that are receding, that's boosting sea levels, um, supposedly from just Greenland and Antarctica. Seven tenths of an inch, which doesn't sound like that much, but across the entire earth, that's a lot of water coming in. And like the melting polar ice, that's been about a third of like the sea level rise that we've seen. And again, I'm talking about just since the 1990s. So, you know, yeah, that's, it's scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's a lot in my lifetime. You know, mm-hmm. and so she's using her art to create images that are beautiful, but also raising awareness of these major ecological issues that we've been grappling with and sometimes trying not to grapple with for quite some time.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I learned about her. You mentioned the 2015 expedition. uh, with National Geographic. I think that's around the time, actually, when I learned of her and, um, I learned about her also through like learning about research about, uh, artists as activists. Mm -hmm. And, um, I loved her work because, it was beautiful. It wasn't sad. It wasn't, um, like the, it, there was a sense of hope to it as well. Like it, because, um, it wasn't, it didn't look like doomed, but it still caught your, it caught your attention with the beauty, but then you learn about what it is really showing what, what she has learned through her expeditions. And I think that's really powerful because, I think a lot of people, like you said, are not grappling with this reality. And I think, in my opinion, part of that is because, well, it's it's really sad. It's depressing. And when confronted with this like sad information or blame or negativity, I think that it turns a lot of people away from it.
2: See, I think that's true uh, to a point. But I also, I also think people have a tendency to just kind of be focused on what's immediate and what's around them. And Antarctica, it, like I've never been there. I haven't seen this firsthand. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think it's safe to say that most people are in that boat, um, I am spending my day to day trying to figure out how to get my dog to stop like eating my children's stuffed animals. You know, <laughs> right. that's the that's the that's the crisis of my day. And I just at a certain point is like you just get that out of sight out of mind, but with her work she begins this massive undertaking and i do do mean massive cuz her drawings are immense i don't know where she acquires such paper and you know, I am going to maybe call her a hypocrite for using so much paper. I mean, how many trees died for those papers?
1: Um I wondered that too. And all the pastel <laughs> dust, which she's <laughs> saying that she's plugging her nose when like not breathing it in. And as my class is doing clay, I'm like, what are we doing with all this dust? So I wondered those questions too.
2: But yeah. But it but in all seriousness, she's creating this work that is based on her experience, her travels, the things that she has seen and she has experienced, and she's trying to bring that to a larger audience. Um, and, And I think it's interesting that she's going for the ice and the water, not only because of the ecological impacts that scientists have been telling us about but also she just talks about in her own sort of personal experience from an early age she she was drawn to water and the idea of water as a metaphor for life because you know it's moving and the body the human body is made of water and most of the earth's surface is made of water so it just seems like this perfectly fitting subject for her to be tackling and so after the break we're going to take a look at one of her drawings, one of her pastel drawings, and dive a little deeper into these issues.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda.
2: We're back here now. Um, I'm, again with Caitlin and Corby, the hosts of the podcast, those art teachers. And we are looking at Caitlin's favorite artist, Zaria Foreman, and specifically, we're looking at a drawing of the Lincoln Sea from Greenland. Now, as you're looking at this, what's jumping out at you? What are you noticing?
3: So this one stands out to me because the ice is, it looks like an ice sheet that's breaking apart and there's a really wide variety of sizes of the ice. It's, there's a huge one at the bottom, there's medium to large up near the top, but then in the middle, like there's this kind of, it almost looks like something you'd find in space, like this ring of broken ice in these little pieces and it kind of looks like it almost exploded off or something so i i can talk about this a lot but I, that's what i see first off off right off the bat
2: yeah i i see that and as you talk about from space uh to my knowledge she has not been to space but she has worked with nasa <laughs> um like she has done so much with so many different people she's done like yeah. ted talks and worked with national Ge- national geographic nasa like just doing so many things with so many prestigious organizations um but as i'm looking at this i i see the fragmentation and what's interesting to me is as i'm looking at this it looks like it was shot from above, like the view from space, but it also feels almost like something under a microscope. Mm -hmm. I'm having like flashbacks to high school science classes. I'm just like, it looks like a slide from under the, under the microscope. And I think it's really interesting. Like it it feels like a mineral or something that's been crushed up, Mm. you know, as I look at this and maybe this is because I have been, spending quite a bit of time reading about histories of different materials and pigments and and other stuff like that. This feels to me like, you know, a study of lapis lazuli and how it, you know, gets ground down and what the crystalline structure is and all of that sort of stuff. The other thing I find really interesting, just it almost becomes an abstraction of sorts, and I think that's why we can have these different thoughts and connections. Like, we don't see a horizon line. We don't see sky and ground. I mean, we, we, I guess we see the frozen ground and the water. But in some ways, it feels abstract or non-objective. It feels like it's just about these colors and textures, even though it is based on photographs of an actual natural environment. I think it's kind of cool how it's simultaneously photorealistic and feels abstract.
1: I I wanted to pipe in or jump in yeah. on that comment about the color and the abstraction. And also my former uh, rock nerdy self as a middle schooler really appreciated all of those references because I can't help but see also like rock and mineral references. And when I look at Zaria's work, basically after Caitlin showcased Zaria to me and I got on the Zaria Foreman train I just always am drawn to her use of color like that always blows me away and the the literal like hyper realism of that glacier blue is just spot on and like I just can't like it just floors me and the reason I'm continually impressed too is because I got um to go to Alaska last summer and see glaciers in person. And it is such a unique experience. It's gorgeous, but taking photos of a glacier is nothing like seeing it in person. And her pictures capture what it looks like and what it feels like to be in that moment, like so well. Like it just looking at her work and like looking at this picture, that blue has this like emotional I don't know, like feeling to it or like charge when I look at it. And that's how her work felt before I saw a glacier in person. So I think that's so fascinating that she's able to literally recreate it based on then me getting the experience to like see a glacier in real life, if that makes sense. And it just, her work always has like that power with that blue. It's just like, it's not sad. It's just like this beautiful, heavy blue.
3: Well, it's funny you mentioned the Specific colors because uh her she actually worked with the pastel company, Unison pastels to make a specific color multiple to That's create so cool. a a set of blues that she could use to actually visually describe the glaciers and the ice because it didn't exist.
2: Take that, Eve's Klein.
3: Yeah, <laughs> makes me feel so much better because the
1: hyper realistic nature in me is like, I would love to try and draw this, but I'm like, nah, I don't feel like it's possible with like a a pastel set from even like a fancy art store. I'm like, I just don't feel like that's a thing that we can do, but
3: I believe you can actually, they didn't just make it for her. I think you can actually order it. And after learning that too, I ordered pastels from Unison because I hadn't heard of them as a company. And I think they are based in England, if I'm not mistaken. Um and its like a small company and they make everything by hand. All of the pastels are like rolled by hand and wow. everything. and they're kind of pricey, but they are a dream to work with. Like, oh, I bet they're so smooth. So yeah, anyway, I could talk about that for a while, but that's really yeah. cool. That makes- I just thought it was brilliant that she like literally invented like she had to go and create her own colors. yeah,
1: the specific glacier color palette.
2: Yeah, I, I think the creation of multiple shades of blue, like you were saying, it it's amazing. But I also like that she doesn't keep it to herself. She makes it available to others, you know, kind of the anti-Anish Kapoor. I always like that. And just looking at this, it, the the blues that she has created, as you say, it's amazing how she's conveying the temperature, the feel of it. Like, this is probably one of the strongest examples that if I'm trying to teach kids about color temperature and stuff, it's like, this is why. Because when you look at this, you do get that sense of cold.
3: Yeah, it's the coldest blue I've ever seen. It really looks physically cold. It's gorgeous. Um, (laughs) And also, if you're not just teaching about color, but also like value, like, Going into if you're going and trying to prepare a, an artist to teach value, she it would be one to look at because most of them are monochromatic. They're
0: mm-hmm.
3: a million shades of blue, um, but they are photorealistic. They, it's amazing what she does with the use of value, and uh, and knowing that she actually created those values is just like mind-boggling. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to definitely
1: share that with my students because when I show her to students during value units to show them, hey, it doesn't have to just be in black and white, they literally don't believe, they're like, oh, you made that up. Like, she doesn't draw these. I'm like, yes, these are not photographs. Like, she is rendering them with pastel. This is possible because of her concept of value. And they're just, like, blown away. They're like, there's no way. There's no way. I'm like, yes, she does it.
2: Well, I I think it's also important to to mention like just what the, the process is for creating these. I mean, she is making these photorealistic pastel drawings. And if you've worked with pastels, and I know the two of you have, but I guess I'm throwing that out for the audience, those who have worked with pastels, soft pastels, they smear so easily, which is the thing you love about them, but also the thing that you hate about them. And when you're trying yep. to work and get it really detailed fine detail the bigger it is kind of the easier it is to work in cuz you know you're smudging so much with your fingertips and it's a very it's a very powerful connection with the medium in my in my experience cuz like there's something about it that feels like this is how I made art as a child this is how I first learned by using my fingers to spread the pigment and you know she's just much better at it but <laughs>
3: I think she jokes in her TED talk actually that she is a finger painter.
2: (laughs) uh, Yes, that does feel familiar. Yeah, that's yeah. I she does, but but also she's wearing gloves as she does it because Mm. as the three of us know, like there's a lot of dust associated. You don't want to be inhaling that. You don't like, like when you're working with certain pigments. There are issues of you know the the components that are going into it are not always healthy for a human being to be taking into their body and right. and so um she is cautious about that she's taking those precautions she's using the gloves she's trying not to inhale too much of the dust and all of that but but also i think that gets into why she's working on such a massive scale because when when I'm looking at her her body of work and I'm seeing these dimensions, I mean, this specific drawing we were looking at, the Lincoln Sea Greenland, that's 68 by 108 inches. I think there's, there's a fraction in there, too. It's like 108 and an eighth inches or something like that. But give or take, 68 by 108 inches. So, I, I mean, we're talking about a drawing that is over five and a half feet tall.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, that it's is taller than huge. I am yeah and and it's that's
3: taller than I am, and it's almost twice my length
2: yeah and and that's part of the reason that she's able to capture so much detail in there um just from the practical creative sense. But then when you're looking as an audience, I mean, it makes this drawing overwhelming. There are certain cases where you need, I think, that scale of work because the the size of the work, a lot of people think that's incidental, but like realistically speaking, that is a part of the piece as well. That's a part of the viewing experience. I mean, a Mark Rothko painting, it doesn't work if it's only like a foot tall, right? That, that's why you see the printed works of of his. You see the, the posters right. in the office and you're like, why, why does anyone care about that? But when you go to the museum and you see it in all of its grandeur, the, that grand scale, it has this different impact and resonance. And I think that's largely what she's going for with these drawings is she's describing the environment, which is such a massive thing topic to be exploring and she uses that massive scale for the paper to to have that that grandeur and that that just awe-inspiring effect on the viewer when when you see it in person
3: right i didn't it didn't really fully hit me until i saw um a picture of her working on it and i could see the scale like how large they were compared to her working Mm -hmm. on it and then I was like, oh my gosh, like these are gigantic. And it really, it's more impactful that way. And I think it's definitely, like you said, it's part of the, it's part of the drawing or painting. It's an artist's choice for the size and scale of their work is every part, as much of it as the colors, the materials, like the, the content. Um and i think she did that obviously intentionally to grab people's attention she wants to make people fall in love with the environment because once they love something they will act out of emotion to save it if they are just reading about and some people might care if they're reading about it but if they're you know, a lot of people, if they're just reading about the Antarctic or Greenland or the, the Maldives, wait, how did you say it?
2: Maldives is Maldives. how I say it. But I, I Nobody like I should always... look to me for pronunciation on anything. ever.
3: <laughs> but when you read about it, it might not be as impactful. But when you see, like you said, it's not we don't see that in our daily lives. That's not our problem of the day but when you are stopped in your tracks by this gigantic piece of art and it it will leave an impression and hopefully people will fall in love with that landscape and then maybe they'll care a little bit more about trying to do something about it and i think that's her goal and so i think the size is really important
2: yeah and i i think the i think the size and and the fact that she is capturing so much of that that landscape so accurately not just in terms of the the shapes and the proportions the values but like the temperature the 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 look and the feel of it because when you capture a feeling it it lands differently you know when i google information about you know glaciers melting and stuff and I, and I said oh the sea levels have ri- risen seven tenths of an inch like let's be honest nobody cares but when when Zaria talks about I developed an appreciation for the beauty and vastness of the ever-changing sky and sea I loved watching the far-off storm on the western desert plains the monsoon rains of southern India the the cold Arctic light illuminating Greenland's waters. Like she talks about her work that paints this vivid picture and you see her passion, you can feel her passion and that builds like that empathy and understanding. Like I say, it just, it resonates differently. It gets you at that gut level that I think, um, it makes all the difference in the world because otherwise it's just another fact that you will hear and forget.
3: Yeah. And as the Gen Zers say, it hits different. <laughs> uh, I
2: just, I, I, I just, I, I love it. Cause I, I can't believe I'm that person who's like, is that how the kids talk these days?
3: That's how I feel when I hear it. I'm like, is that the new thing? <laughs>
2: I used to be cool.
1: I just say it and I make them cringe and then it's even better like to watch them be like, "Ugh, that's weird when you say it. And I'm like, good.
2: It's just as weird when they say it, Mm -hmm. they they just have no shame.
3: I got us off track. Sorry.
2: (laughs) No, it's fine. Um, anything else you want to say about Zaria and this work though?
1: I just love her hyper-realistic detail. Like that's always what I obsess over when I look at her work. Like I'm just always impressed. So I have nothing more to add. I just think it's incredible, mm. technicality wise, like it's flawless.
3: And I think that's unique for, and maybe, maybe not, maybe just based on what I've seen, but I think it's unique for an uh, art as like an artist activist to be mm. so highly skilled in like this one medium and, uh, and to have this hyper realistic, like photorealistic, uh, work. Because I think art activism oftentimes is very is so contemporary that it's like
1: performance um, or abstract. Yeah, yeah. Or
3: like so conceptual, so heady that it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a it falls under a different media. It's like, you have to have
1: a little code to like read what each thing is to then like put the puzzle piece together. But hers yeah. is not
3: that way. This mix is like traditional art making media in a way and also content or subject matter like landscape right like it's a if you were to just say she makes pastel landscapes that sounds that sounds very traditional and and very I don't know mundane even like Mm -hmm. or or like expected like it's warm
1: it's the usual in art
3: Yeah. Or almost like folksy, like, uh, like there's, there's many pastel artists that, that do that, that, that contribute to that kind of genre of work. But when, then when you really look at, when you actually look at it, it's so much more than that because it's not just a a pretty landscape. It's the fact that this beautiful landscape is disappearing. And so that I think is a, that's the hook that like, hooks into the activism part and changes the whole meaning for me.
2: Yeah. And I think what's interesting, I mean, like you talked about a lot of the artists as activists, they tend to put the concept first and the execution and the art materials. It's not that they don't put the thought and effort into that. I mean, the craft is always a part of the work, but you're right. It looks different. And I think largely because... More of that contemporary art, I think, is largely about metaphor, and it's mm-hmm. a it's a lot chosen for that, the symbolism, and um, the associations with different things. Whereas she is working, as you say, she's a, a landscape artist. She's working in past, making pastel drawings, which all feels very traditional, except. In addition to what you said about the, the vanishing landscape, which is the background knowledge we as the viewers have, um, I think there's also something about her framing of the compositions that feels very contemporary. Um, she's going boldly monochromatic in a lot of these instances. She is doing these compositions from the the view looking down at the landscape or from these angles that it becomes almost an abstraction we see it differently it hits differently right that's how the kids say it um you got it <laughs> I got it I just killed some slang for somebody right now um but you're right like it's it's the kind of thing that has one foot in in the traditional and one foot in in contemporary and Honestly, I think that's what makes it interesting and appealing to me because um, I, I always like I always like the artist that is walking a tightrope. You know, it's like this fine line where you go too far in either direction and it just doesn't work. And I'm wrapping it up. I, I want a, just a three point rating scale. And four, where should this hang? The Lou? Is this something to look at? The lab? The lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the Louvre. British for that. A, yeah. It's There's the a poop joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible.
3: I feel like I'm on the line between the lab and the Louvre. And I also want to say, I mean lab could be like classroom, right? Um I always wanted to I don't ever want to pick one.
2: That's fine. Um,
3: because just,
2: just- break the rules ignore sure. my system it's that. it's almost winter break the rules are going out the window in so many art teachers classrooms i get yeah. it yeah you're the that artists. kid
3: artists well, I, break the rules yeah i don't the rules are just merely suggestions right uh but i uh i think the louvre because like i said i think they're so technically like well done um well executed and they are traditional in that sense. And I think they could fit in, in a traditional museum or a contemporary museum um, and the size of it, would look great, you know, across from the Mona Lisa. So um, I think that, but also the lab or a classroom, because there's so much we can learn from these uh, from not only the, the content or the concept of climate change and, uh, the sea levels rising and the ice caps melting and the temperature changing, but, um, but also learn how she uses value and composition and space. And so I think both.
2: <laughs> it's fair enough. Solid. What do, what about you, Corby?
3: So
1: I was also going to say I'm split between the lab and the Louvre. <laughs> However, my reasoning is the same but different, but I'll explain that. So I think it should be in the Louvre because I'm imagining if we're in a world where we lose all of the glaciers, museums are built so that we can save things that are important and save artifacts. So like generations that come next can see like what the world was like before our times now. So to me to put it in a museum would be appropriate so that way we can like honor document and preserve this but then because museums aren't always accessible to all people that's why I would want to say the lab so that way it is like in a more working environment people are talking about it more actively so I'm just torn because of like the institution of a lab versus a museum but ideally I would pick a museum because I want people to go to museums and like this is preserved so I think I guess my answer officially is the Louvre um
3: yeah. as you can see we don't overthink I, anything I, ever yeah
2: I you know I I, I appreciate that um, <laughs> I I love your apocalyptic vision and, and you know gosh I hate your, it. I your, mean, but that's your need to go there for, yeah. us. um, I, you know, it's just, I, I'm but, being
1: honest, if this is the way we're at, like we need to preserve it, but I want people to have access to it so we can do something about it at the same time.
2: On that topic of preservation. I, I agree. I, I ultimately I ended up looking at this as a museum piece for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, I I think there's something really interesting in the way that all of these things come together. I mean, not only is she drawing extremely well, I think it's really a brilliant choice of pastels as a medium for describing a delicate environment because pastel drawings are so delicate. I mean, quite literally, you breathe the wrong way and you can ruin one of those drawings. And so... The, the shifting dusts and stuff of the pastel in some ways feels metaphorical for the environment and the fragility of all of that that ties this work together. Um, so I, I think it's successful on so many levels in terms of like her draftsmanship, her choice of materials and how it ties into everything conceptually, all of that. But also just it's beautiful to look at. And for me, like, I I need that too. There's, there's this just, there's this sense of quiet to the drawing, right? Which, like, so many conceptual pieces, especially about a problem that, that is, you know, an existential threat, as, as so many people would, would pose it, like, that is very unnerving to me. but when I'm looking at this, I, I I see the problem and I understand and I can grapple with it and and it has some emotional resonance with me. but it also has a softness, a calm, a quiet to it that i I can appreciate and enjoy at the same time there's there's a meditative quality to it that. Like, I can just get lost in the little details and the shifts of these such cold blues that, you know, I I love it. I I enjoy it. I I look at it. And I am sincerely thanking you for bringing this to my attention because, you know, it it was one I, I've, I've seen this image before, but like I hadn't given the thought and consideration until you had brought her up again and and so i have oh yeah of course rediscovered and and found a new appreciation for it
3: yeah i think i think that is what so what has made her my favorite artist is because her work doesn't yell at you it makes you fall in love with the details of this landscape and makes you well for me it makes me more passionate about the concept of environmentalism and like preservation. And I think that is a, a noble goal of an art artist and activist um, to do something, create something that is so beautiful, but also uh, kind of inspires people to think more deeply about this concept. So that's what that's what I love about it.
2: Well, thank you. i I I fully agree. And hopefully this conversation has,, um, you know, sparked something and will inspire my listeners to go out and look at Zaria's work and appreciate it and think about the environment and our place in it. And maybe maybe it's not as, bleak a picture as corby would like us to believe
1: (laughs) i mean i'm just being realistic but i will say and caitlin mentioned this earlier that i do think that that's what's powerful about zaria's work is that it has this feeling of hope and i think Mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing is that we're looking at this we're all talking about how beautiful this environment is we're aware of i mean we were aware of climate change before but like really sitting with it And it doesn't feel like it's this doomsday thing that's yelling at you. It's just saying, hey, yeah, like, look how beautiful I am. Why wouldn't you want to know more about me? Why wouldn't you want to appreciate this? And I think that is very unique too in the activist lens is that usually it feels like people are like screaming at you, like, pay attention to me. And like, this is the state of like emergency we're in. And that these pastel paintings or drawings don't do that. Like you said it so well, Caitlin, they don't yell at you. They're this beautiful, quiet, emotional experience. So not doomsday.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Just delicate drawings to remind us that our environment is also delicate.
3: Yeah. That's a good way to that's, put it. That yeah. is a great way to put it. Yeah, exactly.
2: So, well, thank you, Um Caitlin and Corby, appreciate your taking the time once again. And I would encourage everyone to listen to those art teachers. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much.